at last week. We looked at Genesis 3.15 in the context of Genesis chapter 3. But our principal text is going to be Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. I mentioned Hosea 6, verse 7, because I don't want you to lose that reference in the context of the message this morning, but I'll refer to it in just a few moments. It won't be part of the reading as we read the word this morning. Reading from the English Standard Version translation, uh, reading first Genesis 3.15, and then moving into the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. The Lord God said, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then Romans chapter 5, God speaking through the writings of the Apostle Paul, nevertheless, the infallible and errant word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for indeed sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, open up our, our minds and our ears and our hearts to your word this morning. Uh, these passages uh, deal with some very significant truths. And so we pray that we as believers would desire to know them and desire to embrace them. And finding them helping us to understand your ways in redemptive history, understand the gospel, understand what it means to be in Christ, to know him as our Lord and Savior. And Father, we pray that it wouldn't just be knowledge we gain. We pray it would be the transforming work of your word in our lives, conforming us more and more to be like your son so that we can live in this world with deep purpose to show forth your glory in living for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. 
We introduced this topic last week. I'm going to introduce it again. What is one of the biggest questions we all face as Christians? We face the question, why is there so much pain and suffering and conflict and evil in the world? From the biblical perspective, we describe the world this way and we say this is the brokenness of the world. It's not just Christians who wrestle with this question. Every religion has attempted to answer this. Every great philosophy has attempted to answer this. Even science today is attempting to answer this question. Why is the world broken? And what does this brokenness mean? Now, last Sunday, we looked at Genesis chapter 3. We went through the whole chapter. We looked at the story of the temptation of Adam and Eve. And in that story, we get the basic, fundamentally and true story of why the world is broken. Uh, We understand that God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve. He created them in his own image, which means that they were truly righteous and they were truly morally good, which means there wasn't a particle or speck of evil within them at all. But they consciously chose to trust in themselves and to lean upon their own understanding in the face of the temptation that was presented them, rather than to trust in God and to trust him with their whole hearts. Now, as I pointed out last week, one way of analyzing what Eve and Adam with her actually did can be seen by looking through the lens of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. The proverb, trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, or he will direct your paths. Well, Adam and Eve did the very opposite of that. They trusted in themselves. They leaned on their own understanding. They did not acknowledge God in all of their ways, And consequently, they lost guidance from God. They lost direction from God because they fell away from God. Now, the sin of Adam and Eve, according to Genesis 3, broke the world. Uh, In the very beginning, the world was very, very good. Genesis 1.31. But now the world is broken. Uh, All the evil we see, all the pain and all the suffering, all the conflict, it all comes from them. God isn't to be blamed. The fault lies not with the stars. Some of you know that reference, contemporary. The fault doesn't lie with the stars. The fault doesn't lie with God. The fault lies with them. But also in Genesis 3:15, we have God's response to the broken world. It's not only judgment, but judgment is there because the brokenness of the world is part of God's judgment. God also gives a promised hope. The seed of the woman who's going to bruise the serpent's head. And of course, the name of that hope is Jesus. Now that verse, Genesis 3.15, has been called the beginning or the fountainhead or the mother of all the Old Testament promises that God was going to send a savior into the world who would destroy the works of the devil, who would taste death for the fallen human race, who would bring life and immortality to light, And in the consummation of all things would remove the curse from this creation and bring about a recreation of the broken world, a new heavens and a new earth. We come again to the story of the fall then. 
the question before us this morning is to ask ourselves, how, how do the apostles who are taught by Jesus understand what's happening in Genesis chapter 3? Particularly, how do they understand the role of Adam in Genesis chapter 3 in regards to the sinfulness and brokenness of the human race? In light of everything that the New Testament reveals about Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his death force, his resurrection, how are we to understand the place and the role of Adam in the breaking of the world? Or to raise this question, the same question, but from another angle. Why do I have to suffer because of what Adam did? Now, I think that's a significant question. When I was catechizing my children and we came to the statement about Adam and his sin and how Adam and sin lost holiness and righteousness and goodness and fellowship for all of us. One of my children said to me, doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair at all. At nine years of age, able to perceive this doesn't seem fair that the world is broken and I'm broken because of what someone else did. Doesn't seem fair at all. People have said, well, doesn't the story in Genesis 3 really say that we are victims, huge victims of Adam and Eve? Now, what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 5 actually directs us to answer those kinds of questions which have been honestly and sometimes dishonestly, sometimes intelligently, sometimes with the insight of a little child, have been raised against the story that we find in Genesis chapter 3. Honest questions, sometimes dishonest questions at other times. But nevertheless, questions which we actually find Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 uh, addressing and answering and if we're patient enough to look at this, we can see it brings answers that are clear. Now, I want to look at this passage. We don't have time to go through it verse by verse by verse and detail by detail by detail. But by even looking at it in terms of a kind of an overview, we can see three of its dominant themes. We can find in Genesis, we can find in this passage a reflection of what's going on in Genesis 3. And we can also see here the Apostle Paul, taught by Christ to understand it this way, we can see the spiritual history of the world being presented in three ways. The spiritual history of the world being presented by what happens to Adam and Jesus, or the two Adams, the first and the last. We can also see the spiritual history of the world in, the, in that what Adam does, what the last Adam does, Christ does, actually brings about two humanities, and then finally, we can understand the Scripture is going to teach us that in the nature of all this, it all represents two covenants, two covenants that are actually involved in the spiritual history of the world. Now, let me give it to you very, very simply because the Apostle Paul gives it in a phrase that is incredibly simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 22 Here's the simple phrase that Paul gives. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
As in Adam, all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. That, in one statement, is the spiritual history of the whole human race from the first creation till the last human being who will ever live. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But the question is, what does Paul mean by that? How do we unpack that? And the unpacking of that statement is actually found in what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. But I'll give you a preview of what that unpacking looks like. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is what it's going to mean. All who are in Adam, that is, all who are represented by Adam, who belong to Adam's covenant, and who will continue to belong to Adam's covenant, they will die in the fullest biblical sense of death, physically, spiritually, eternally. But all who are in Christ, who are represented by Christ, who belong to Christ's covenant, will be made alive, even with everlasting life. And of course, they'll have that glorious eternity with God. Now, that's what we're looking at here this morning. Uh, the history of the world, the history of this broken world, the history as we understand it in Genesis 3, reflected in Paul talking about this in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, that we have the entire spiritual history centered in the first and last Adam. We have this entire spiritual history given us two distinct humanities. We have this entire spiritual history understood under the concept of two covenants. Now first, let's consider one of the biggest truths in the Bible. The spiritual history of the world can be understood, seen, looked at, summed up from the perspective of two atoms. Now, that's really uh, the heart of this whole passage, but let's look specifically at the beginning of it, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, Paul writes, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world, before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even of those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. Now, I want to highlight the main ideas that we find in those several verses. First, the entrance of sin. It comes through one man, Adam. Sin comes into the world through this one man, Adam. That sums up the teaching of Genesis chapter 3. But then we look at the cause of death in this world. And what Paul says here is that Adam's sin brought death into this world. Death spreads to all men because all sin. But specifically, verse 15 tells us, the many died through the one man's trespass. It's Adam's sin that brings death to everybody. Even though all people sin, it's Adam's death that actually brings death into this world, this death that comes to all men. Adam's Sin brings death to all people. That's what Paul is saying. Thirdly, the universal reign of death. Verse 14, death reigns from Adam until Moses. Now what's significant about that is Paul says, 
even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the trespass of the first man, Adam. Well, what, how did Adam sin? Specific commandment from God. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam transgressed that specific God-spoken, God-revealed law. But Paul says, even over those who didn't have a spoken revelation of God's law, from Adam until Moses, uh, the pagan world was without that spoken voice. But with Moses, God speaks from Mount Sinai. God writes the law with his fingers upon tablets of stone. God gives the law to Moses. So we see the contrast here. Death reigns even over those who didn't have that specific commandment from God in that way. But did they have no law? Well, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Romans, Paul has already declared the truth about people who didn't have a specific word from God, but nevertheless, creation itself has declared God's existence so that they know his eternal power and his divine nature. And then if you look at the last verse of Romans chapter 1, you read this. And this is speaking of the heathen, the pagans who don't have the law of Moses. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What do we find? Where does this law come from? Well, in chapter 2 of Romans, we're told it's upon their heart. It's upon their conscience. It's upon their mind. When God created us in his image, he wrote his righteous law upon our hearts. And even after we've sinned, even after the image of God has been so broken and, and, and vitiated and marred and all of that, even then we cannot escape the fact that God puts into us, upon our hearts, in our conscience, in our minds, a rather profound sense of what is right and wrong a profound sense of what God's righteous decree is. And Paul says, hey, uh, there's no excuse for the pagan world. They know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things are actually worthy of death. Now, the fourth thing, back to Romans chapter 5, is this. Paul says, Adam is a type of Christ. Now, that's an incredibly profound statement that directs us to understand when we're reading Genesis 2 and 3, we're reading about Adam and his life. Up until the point of his sin, we need to recognize that God had made Adam a type of Christ. Now, what's a type? Well, a type is something that we find in Scripture. It's a kind of an analysis. It's a kind of comparison where two things are closely related. One is more symbolic. The other expresses more of the reality. So with respect to Christ, we look to all of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. And we say all of these animal sacrifices were types of what? Well, the ultimate sacrifice in his blood of the Lord Jesus. That's why John, St. Um, <clears throat> John the Baptist, not St. John the Gospel writer, but John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, we also recognize that the Levitical priesthood was a type of Christ. Because without this mediator, they couldn't worship. Well, Christ is our high priest. But we also recognize that, that the temple is a type of Christ. 
The temple represented to the people of God in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple. This is the dwelling place of God with men. This is where he dwells. When Christ came into the world, uh, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh, and literally in the Greek it says, and he tabernacled among us for a while. Christ himself declared that his own body was the temple. He's the temple. So we recognize these things as types. They're, they're things that have an analogy, a comparison to. They, they represent a greater reality. But nevertheless, they stand in this close relationship. And here we're told that, that Adam in the garden was a type of the one to come. So this connection between Adam and Christ is the first type we find in the Bible. The most incredible type that we find in the Bible between these two men. And it's based upon that typology that Paul says and explains what he does. Now, if Adam is a type of Christ, then clearly we can see his role in human history is going to be incredibly, incredibly decisive. Because there's been no one who has ever acted in human history of greater significance of greater impact than the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, how does this type, how does this analogy work? Well, it works by way of representation. Again, we can see this by going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Well, how can people die in Adam? How can people be made alive in Christ? How can what Adam did, how can his sin break the world, plunge the human race into its condemnation and brokenness? How? And on the other hand, how could Christ bring salvation on behalf of others? How could the work of Christ become yours? The principle is the principle of representation. Well, in other words, in the phrase, in Adam, we're seeing Adam his representation. We can look at it this way. So all those who are represented by Adam, all who are in Adam shall die. On the other side of it, in Christ, we can see that this phrase speaks to the representation of Christ. So all who are in Christ, all who are in Christ shall be made alive. That's the meaning. Uh, the spiritual history of the entire human race speaking of final destinies, are written in Adam or written in Christ. The role of Adam, the role of Christ, human history, spiritual history, absolutely decisive. Those represented by Adam, for them there is condemnation and eternal death. Those who are represented by Christ, for them there is justification and eternal life. So I'm going to just sum this up. The brokenness of the world, uh, the broken relationship with God, broken relationship to nature, which is under a curse, our broken relationship with other human beings because of the conflicts we have, the broken relationship we have even within ourselves. As I've said many times, we are our own worst enemies. All of that brokenness comes from this role of Adam in the garden in which he was the first 
of the human race, but the one who represented the human race before God. But then Paul also points to Christ. Paul calls Christ the last Adam. To, to emphasize this typology, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45. The seed of the woman who's promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, comes to obey. The first Adam disobeys. He comes to obey. He comes to obey where the first Adam sinned. So, the comparisons that we see and what Paul writes here, Jesus has come to bring life where the first Adam brought death. The last Adam comes to bring justification where the first Adam brings condemnation. The last Adam comes to make men righteous where the first Adam made them sinful. The transgression of the first Adam broke the world. The grace that comes with the last Adam brings righteousness that's going to lead to everlasting life. So that's my first point. Hopefully the other two will be briefer. But here's what we need to understand. The spiritual history of the human race is decisively determined in the first Adam or the last Adam. Now, the second thing we want to see here is that in light of this representation of the first Adam, the representation of the last Adam, the spiritual history of the world divides into two humanities, two camps of people, two distinct camps. Now, all through the passage we see this, but look at verses 18 and 19 in particular. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Adam and Christ, in their respective actions, divide the human race into two contrasting groups of human beings. Under the headship of Adam, you have the camp of the condemned, the many who are made sinners by that one man's transgression. But from the headship of Christ, you have the camp of the justified who are going to inherit eternal life, who will be made righteous because of Christ's obedience on their behalf. Now, I want you to note how clear the Bible is on this issue. Adam and Christ, this representation, is really what we've always understood as Christians. There's two camps of people, the lost and the redeemed. And I want to say this, brothers and sisters, that is the only distinction among human beings that has any kind of true and ultimate significance. Either we are, by the grace of God, part of those who are redeemed, or because we've refused the grace of God, we belong to those who are condemned. That's the only distinction among human beings that matters ultimately at all. It's the only gospel distinction that matters at all. The greatest theologian of the first 1,000 years was Augustine. He was the Bishop of Hippo, city on the north of uh, Africa. So this North African bishop 
wrote his greatest work, The City of God, this is what he said about this. He says, I classify the human race into two branches. The one consists of those who live by human standards, the other of those who live according to God's will. I also call these two classes the two cities, speaking allegorically. By two cities, I mean two societies of human beings, one of which is predestined to reign with God for all eternity, the other doomed to undergo eternal punishment with the devil. The practical value of this, as you and I go through the world and interact with other people, our deepest concern ought to be this. Do they belong to the city of God? Or do they belong to the city of man? Have they experienced the justifying, regenerating grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he came to do in this world? Or are they still lost in their sinfulness? All other considerations about everybody else you meet are secondary, way secondary to this. What is their state before the living God? Are they in Christ or are they still in Adam? And that's, that's such a strong sense of what Paul is saying here. He doesn't want us to read this and pat ourselves on the back and say, how wonderful it is that we're Christians, we're in, we're in Christ. No, he wants us to read this and humbly recognize it's only by the grace of God that we are in Christ but look at those who aren't and see that they still experience the travail of the brokenness of the world. Remember, God sent Jesus into this world on a mission as a missionary to seek and to save those who are lost. And and if that's not part of our identity, even a significant part of our identity, even a burning concern of our identity as Christians, to be one with Christ in terms of his mission in this world, then, then we have lost that love of God by which he delivered up his own son as a fragrant offering unto himself if we have lost that sense that to walk in love is to hunger and hurt for the salvation of the lost, then we have somehow drifted away from what the love of God in Christ is all about. And, and, and Paul's writing here is to impress upon us there is no neutral, spiritual, demilitarized zone where some are saved and some are just okay and some are lost. There's no middle ground. Either we are in Christ or we are in Adam. And either we are with Christ in hungering and hurting for the lost so that they might be saved, or we've lost all spiritual sensitivity. We've let our hearts grow cold. We're happy when the wicked perish. Finally, the spiritual history of the world involves two covenants. The New Testament teaching, what Paul gives us about Adam, is this. Adam isn't simply the physical and biological head of the human race. He is that, but he's not just that. 
if he were only that, he would have no right to represent us spiritually and morally before God. So there must be something else going on in Scripture that enables Adam to be like Christ. And the concept is covenant. Now you say, but I don't see the word covenant given to us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 about God's relationship to Adam, Adam's relationship to us. And I say, well, don't worry that the word covenant isn't there. We all know that marriage is also given to us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and the word covenant isn't spoken there about marriage. But later in the Bible, uh, Malachi 2.14, uh, we have the word statement that uh, the Israelites had been unfaithful to their wives, who they were wives by covenant. So the Bible describes marriage as a covenant, even though it doesn't say so in Genesis 1 and 2. But the Bible also describes the relationship of God to Adam as covenant. It does so in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. God is bringing his concerns against the Israelites through the prophet Hosea. And he says in verse Hosea 6, verse 7, he says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt unfaithfully with me. Right there it says, you don't need a thousand statements that it's covenant. You only need one. And even if you didn't have that one, you would look at it and say, look at the relationship. How could Adam stand this way to the entire human race unless God constitute a relationship between Adam and the rest of the human race? Further perspective about marriage. What does marriage make to people? Leaving, cleaving, and the two shall become one flesh. The understanding of that is they're no longer two but one, Jesus says. That is to say, they have a covenantal union between them. When a husband is married, he and his wife have a covenantal union in that covenant. Well, in the same way, Adam, as the head of the human race, covenantally has a covenantal union. How does that play out? Well, it plays out this way. Since there's this union between Adam and all those who are his descendants by ordinary generation, God has the full right to test the entire human race in the one man, Adam. Coming back to then our original question, doesn't the story of Adam and Eve make us victims? A number of years ago, I read R.C. Sproul's wonderful response to this. And I'll just represent what Sproul said. He said, yes, Adam is your representative. Yes, you did not choose Adam to be your representative, but God did. God chose him on your behalf, and God makes no mistakes. God chose the best to represent you. If God had chosen you to be the representative of the human race, if God had placed you in the Garden of Eden and tested you, you would not have done anything other than what Adam himself did. Adam perfectly represented all of those whom he actually represented within the covenant. So we all suffer because of what Adam did. 
because we all would have done exactly what Adam did. It's perfectly just and perfectly right that this world is broken by what Adam did because any one of us and all of us would have done no differently than what Adam did. Now let me finish by just saying this. This principle of representation, if you have trouble with it, you can't be saved. Because it's exactly that principle at which Jesus represented on the cross all those who were going to trust in him. It's exactly the way Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross as the one who inaugurated the new covenant so that he would shed his blood for the many. He shed his blood in such a way that his punishment counts for you. The shedding of his blood counts for you. The giving up of his life was done on your behalf. We call this substitution, but substitution is based upon representation. Jesus was given by God to represent this new humanity of all those who would trust in him. And so it finally comes down to this in terms of everybody's response to Jesus. Adam did not trust God with his whole heart, sinned and fell. Salvation comes by trusting in Christ with our whole hearts. It doesn't take works. It doesn't take you trying to be the best you possibly can. No. It actually requires you recognizing that in Adam you're fallen. But Christ, by the grace of God, has done everything for us in order to be saved. And salvation is by trusting in Christ. Why Paul says, it's all who call upon the Lord who will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. As Paul says, though sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Lost in Adam, saved and glorified in Christ, we praise you and thank you. In his name, amen.